Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, Isaiah. You know what they all have in common? They all wrote symphonies. And not just symphonies, but masterpieces that are timeless and unforgettable. You understand these guys were geniuses and brilliant and masters of their craft. Experts in their trade. Now, again, I know the difference between Isaiah and those other guys is obvious. I get that. They wrote in scales. Isaiah wrote scripture. They composed music. Isaiah preached messages. They dealt with melody and harmony. Isaiah did theology and Hebrew poetry. I, I get that, but that doesn't change the fact that what Isaiah wrote was an absolute masterpiece. But you see, like a symphony, Isaiah's masterpiece also has movements and harmony and melody and overtures and crescendos and major and minor keys. It is a masterpiece of poetic beauty, a harmonic kaleidoscope of prophetic theological poetry. You understand the symphony known as the prophet Isaiah is literally a literary masterpiece of 66 chapters in which is contained the blueprints for how the world is going to end. But you see, here's the thing. You don't encounter a book like this and then just go on about your day. No, this is a book that arrests you. You get your world rocked by Isaiah. You get your theology shaped by Isaiah. You get the very lenses with which you view the world radically altered by books like Isaiah because what Isaiah gives us is nothing less than a staggering vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe and that is a gift more precious than gold. And speaking of prophets... Only a prophet could predict how long we will spend in Isaiah as a church. <laughs> but trust me when I say that it will be well worth our time. It'll be well worth our time as a church. Why? Because all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Isaiah included. But Isaiah is also worth our time as a church because it is so hauntingly relevant to the days in which we live. Like I said last week, Isaiah is written for a people who live in tumultuous times, just like we do. It was written during the shifting of entire civilizations, just like now. When the nation in which you live begins to flicker out of existence, just like ours is right now. When the leaders who run your country are godless and corrupt, just like ours. Isaiah was written at a time when the wicked nations of the world were in a global mosh pit for world domination. It was written at a time when the people who were supposed to be God's people were apostates. And they no longer tremble before the word of God. Just like now. That's really interesting. And yet, I don't want you to misunderstand. Isaiah is profoundly not a book of bellyaching nostalgia for how great things used to be before we lost it to the liberals by no means by no means you see isaiah is a masterpiece of prophetic gold that reveals how far better things are going to be to be when the king comes to claim 
his throne. And I can imagine someone saying, Jared, okay, if you have to preach through prophecy, if you have to preach through one of the prophets, why not Jonah, four chapters? <laughs> Zephaniah, three chapters. Haggai, two chapters. Why not just Obadiah, one chapter? Why drag us through 66 chapters of complex, sophisticated stuff written 2,700 years ago when we very well could be learning about marriage or parenting? finances or friendship or how to share the gospel with unbelievers, Jared, why are we paying you to preach to us from Isaiah? Because I want you to be greedy for the greater riches of the Bible. I want you to see what it looks like from the top of the Himalayas. I want you to see, to discover the glorious treasure hidden in the deepest ocean caves of Revelation. I'm preaching this because, as I said last week, desperate times call for desperate measures. And the desperate times in which we live call for the desperate measure of preaching through Isaiah, which is exactly what we're going to do chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse. And when we're done, we will be more equipped to face the onslaught of the world. That being said, however, the struggle is real. The struggle of Isaiah will be real. I mean, you realize just the sheer bulk and size and length of the book can make it really, really challenging, sort of like floating through a maze with no gravity. It's like, well, who is this? And what is this? And when is this? And where is this? And why is this even in our Bibles? So to help us this morning, I'm going to preach through the whole book, the whole thing. You're not going home till dinner. I'll just say, Chuck gave me permission last week. He said, should we pack a lunch? Yes, you should. You should have. Here we go. The whole book all in one shot. The whole symphony of Isaiah's prophecy in one shot because it's divided up into 10 movements, as it were, 10 groups of chapters that, when arranged together, not only make the book make sense, but make a, make a symphony of the supremacy of God that governs everything that comes to pass. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see 10 movements, 10 movements in the prophecy of Isaiah that will help us face a fallen world with courage and conviction. Yes, very soon we will go chapter by chapter, line by line, but this is such an investment for us as a church, we need to make sure we know what we're getting ourselves into. It's too late to turn back. 10 movements in the prophecy of Isaiah that will help us face a fallen world with courage and conviction. Before we do that, however, we need to answer the why. Why is this book even in your Bibles? Because you see, the most important question when studying our Bibles is to ask the question, why does this book even exist in the first place? What is its purpose? What is its design? What does this particular book contribute to the plan of salvation unfolding in the world? Put it this way, what would we be missing if we didn't have that particular book? And if we did not have Isaiah, we would be missing a whole bunch, by the way. But you have to understand the purpose of Isaiah is both involved and complex, and yet it's beautiful. Listen very carefully. The most basic and troubling question lying beneath all 66 chapters of the book is this. How on earth would wicked, sinful, idolatrous Israel ever fulfill their role in the world given by God? That's the question. 
That's, that's the deep question brewing beneath the surface. How would sinful, wicked, idolatrous Israel ever fulfill their role in the world given to them by God? Because you remember, don't you, God chose Abraham back in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, and he made a covenant with him and his future descendants, the Jewish people. And you see, the whole point of that covenant was that Israel was to be a channel of blessing to the ends of the earth. God chose them to be his representatives, to mediate his glory and salvation to the nations. Put it this way, the Jews were chosen by God to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the world, and his servant to the nations. That's the plan. The problem is, in Isaiah's day, they were, and they had been for a really long time, corrupt, rebellious, idolatrous, super immoral, and the nation, if you remember, was severed into two opposing kingdoms that absolutely hated each other. Do you remember that? The splitting of the kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. To complicate things even more, Isaiah and other prophets revealed that both Assyria and Babylon would invade the countries, burn them to the ground, take the Jews out of the land, and make them slaves into exile. That's a problem. That's a really, really problem. You know why? Because how would this Israel become that Israel? How would wicked, godless, idolatrous Israel become righteous, redeemed, reconciled, and reinstated in the land as the channel of God's blessing, his servant to the nations? How is this ever going to happen? And worse, how would they fulfill their role if they didn't even exist as a nation anymore? If they're in exile this, this is not going to work. That's a crushing dilemma in the book of Isaiah, because guess what? If that dilemma doesn't get resolved, that makes God a liar. And his entire plan of redemption crashes to the ground. Do you see? Which means, which means the entire purpose of Isaiah is to reveal that God made a way. Even before creation, God had a plan to save his apostate people and through them bring salvation to the world. In other words, God made a way to reinstate the fallen nation of Israel as his servant to the nations. Does that make sense? And how he would do that, listen very carefully, would be by sending the ultimate servant to earth who would be none other than God himself in human flesh. He would be born as a man, even as a Jew. And get this, from the inside out, this servant would solve the dilemma of sin through the sacrifice of himself, raised to life, establish his long-awaited kingdom on the earth, and then finally make Israel a servant to the nations and light to the world, just like God chose them to be. That is the purpose of Isaiah. That's why it's in your Bibles. Or is the way I'm going to put it from here on out? Isaiah is the supremacy of Yahweh in salvation through the servant. That's Isaiah. The supremacy of Yahweh in salvation through the servant. He will be exalted as supreme. He will be. All the nations will bow before him. Just like Yevi prayed. 
and he will receive, he will be, his supremacy will be displayed, but how? Through the salvation he provides, through the servant that he sends. That's exactly what Yahweh says. Listen very carefully. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 49, verse 6. Get a load of this. Isaiah 49, 6. It it confirms exactly what what I've just told you. This is, we are allowed in this verse to eavesdrop on a conversation between the persons of the Trinity. This is Yahweh speaking to the servant. This is the Father speaking to the Son. Listen to what he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant. To restore the tribes of Jacob and to preserve the lost of Israel. Rather, I will make you a light to the nations, to bring my salvation to the very ends of the earth. Do you hear it? It's not Israel or the nations, it's Israel and the nations. And you know who this mystery servant is, don't you? You know exactly who this is. This can only be the Messiah. And he's everywhere in the book of Isaiah. The one born from a virgin, chapter 7. Mighty God, Prince of Peace from chapter 9. This is the Sovereign King from David's line, chapter 11. This is the Light to the Nations, chapter 42. This is the Suffering Servant, chapter 50. This is the one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, chapter 53, which means who this servant is is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when you start reading through the Gospels, everything begins to come together. Do you remember Mark 10, 45? Christ says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. What did he do just there? He took words from Isaiah 53 and he called himself a servant. Or Luke chapter 4, remember that? Christ walks into a synagogue in Nazareth and he walks up to the front And he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up to chapter 61, which, believe it or not, is a song about the servant. And he reads the text, rolls up the scroll, sets it aside, and he says, that was about me. I am him. He is me. I am your king and Messiah, and I will have your allegiance And the synagogue went ballistic and tried to kill him. But the point is what this means is that this book, Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ ever even showed up to the planet, is all about the supremacy and the sufficiency and the salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. So that's what Isaiah is doing in your Bibles. The supremacy of Yahweh in salvation through the servant. And so what this does is raise the question, This raises the question. The question is, did you know that everything you could possibly need or ask for in this life or in the next is found in the God who became a man for us and for our salvation? Did you know that all of our deepest longings and cravings and hopes and desires 
are supplied by the God who became a man for us and for our salvation? Did you know that everything that Christ is is what we were created to enjoy forever? The reason I ask those questions is because those are the very things we are tempted not to believe. You see, we're daily willing to trade Christ for discount delights and the thrift store thrills of the pleasures of sin. But the good news is Isaiah will help us. Isaiah will persuade our stubborn, forgetful hearts that all those things are loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing the servant. The question now is, can you hear it? Can you hear it? Can you hear the symphony begin to play? Because now we get to 10 movements. 10 movements in Isaiah that will help us face a fallen world with courage and conviction. Movement number one. If you have your notes, you can see it there. Movement number one, punishment predicted, paradise promised. Punishment predicted, paradise promised, chapters one through five. Chapters 1 through 5, which, by the way, are all introduction. Chapters 1 through 5 intro the entire book. And let me just tell you that chapters 1 through 5, they are a bumpy ride. What I mean is Isaiah spends the first five chapters going back and forth between bad news and good news. Most of it bad news, some of it really good news. Warning in this chapter, wooing in the next. Rebuking here, reassuring there. I mean, it is literally a ping-pong match of life and death. So, for instance, Ping, chapter 1. Chapter 1 begins with a bang as we immediately are thrust into a courtroom drama. Chapter 1 is literally written like an ancient Near Eastern courtroom scene where Isaiah begins by calling witnesses to the stand and reading the charges against the people of Israel and Judah. Look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here are some of the charges. Hear, O heavens... And give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. What does he say? Sons I have brought up and I raised, but they rebelled against me. An ox knows its master. And a donkey, the feed trough of its owner. Israel, my people, they do not know. They do not understand. In dramatic fashion, even heaven and earth is called the witness stand. They have been the silent witnesses of the decades and even centuries of wickedness by the people of Israel. In fact, Israel and Judah have been so wicked and naughty that in verse 10, Yahweh calls them Sodom and Gomorrah, the worst cities in the history of the Bible. Immorality was open. Idolatry polluted the land. Drunkenness was rampant. Corruption was everywhere. I mean, these people looked more like the pagans God kicked out of Canaan a thousand years before this than they did the set-apart people of God. They were not a kingdom of priests. They were not a light to the world. They were not a servant to the nations. No, they were exactly like the world. They were worse than the world. They made other nations blush because they were so bad. They were so idolatrous. In verse 21, Yahweh even called Jerusalem a whore. And you would think, you would think that with that much wickedness in the land, you would think, well, Worship at the temple had ceased. Worship at the temple is over. I mean, who's going to the temple anymore? They don't care about God. They're not interested in God. The worship at the temple is over. It's empty. And yet, shockingly, the exact opposite is the case. 
In verses 11 through 15, look, look down at verses 11 through 15, we see that the temple resounded with worship and flowed with the blood of the sacrificial lamb's hypocrisy. They sang the songs, they prayed the prayers, they offered their sacrifices, and yet all of it was an absolute sham. In the Bible belt of the Middle East, their faith was nothing more than acting on a stage. Finally, verses 28 through 31, Yahweh makes it clear that the once great forest of Israel would be burned to the ground and that the inferno of his anger would not be quenched and that they and that judgment and exile were inevitable. In about 150 years, that's exactly what would happen. Ping. But then, Pong. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 all of a sudden opens up with this surprising, breathtaking glimpse of the future. A theatrical trailer for how the world is going to end. Look at chapter 2. Look at what it says. Get a load of this. How it's going to end is nothing less than a global kingdom on the earth ruled by Yahweh himself. Behold your future home. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it will be that in the last of the days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be lifted up above the hills. All the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come, and they will say, Come, let us go up to the house of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob, and let him teach us from his ways. Let us walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he, that is Yahweh, will judge between the nations and decide with fairness for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Would you see it? One day, one day Israel will be restored. The nations will be repentant and God himself, Christ himself, will rule the planet from a throne in Jerusalem. And that changes everything. Knowing the future changes everything about how we view our lives in the present, does it not? Pong. But all of a sudden, ping. Ping in verses 6 through 22. Isaiah just takes a flamethrower to the self-righteous, narcissistic pride of the people of Judah. One day, the great wrath of Yahweh would come. He would rise to terrify the earth. Chapter 2, verse 17, he would rise to terrify the earth. He would be exalted in that day, and they were going to have to choose self-exaltation or Yahweh exaltation, and you can't have both. Ping. But then another ping, chapter 3, gives the horrifying preview of the concentration camp-like conditions of the land when Babylon comes and devastates the land and levels it to the ground. But then all of a sudden, pong, a much-needed thrill of hope in chapter 4. Messiah's reign, Israel's return, the glory of Yahweh radiating from Jerusalem. This is going to happen, but then finally, chapter 5, the saddest ping of all. It's heartbreaking. God summarizes the entirety of his people, the entire history of his people, in the form of a song, a lamenting love song, describing Israel like a vine that bore no fruit. 
But all of a sudden, the weepy violins fade away, the resounding trumpets begin to play, and that brings us to movement number two. These will go faster. Movement number two, the vision of the king. The vision of the king. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw Adonai, the Lord, sitting on a throne, which was lofty and exalted, and his robes were filling the palace. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And this one called to this one and said, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. And the pillars of the thresholds trembled because of the voice of the one who called and the house was filled with smoke. That's chapter 6. And what it is, what it is, is a backstage pass to see the nuclear reactor of the very throne room of the Almighty and what Isaiah sees is nothing short of devastating, right? And you remember the scene at the sight of the raw, unfiltered, matchless holiness of God. How does Isaiah respond? Go up and pat God on the back for such a job well done? No, he has an existential meltdown and his soul comes unraveled at the sight of Yahweh. He says, Oi, Lee, woe to me! I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen Hamelech, the king, Yahweh of hosts. And you remember the rest of the scene. The angelic being comes with the coal, cleanses his lips. You remember that. But then all of a sudden, the funniest thing happened. All of a sudden, Yahweh asks, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? In other words, who is going to go to the apostate people of Judah and preach? Well, that's really funny because Isaiah is the only person in the room. And so he raises his hand and he says, I'll go, send me, which God does. And get this, God goes on to tell Isaiah that no one would repent. No one would believe. No one would accept. How's that for a calling? And you see, here's the thing about Isaiah chapter 6, is that we know that it's there, but we don't know why it's there. And why it's there is because after the death of King Uzziah, an already downhill situation was about to fall off the cliff. You see, Isaiah, Isaiah at this time had already been a prophet for about a year. So what we see here, listen very carefully, what we see here in chapter 6 is not his original installation as a prophet, but his reinstallation. What we see here is not his original marching orders as a prophet, but his new marching orders. And what his new marching orders would include would be an increasingly hostile congregation in which there would be only resistance, only unbelief, only rejection, only opposition. And so, the only thing that could sustain him for a ministry like that of 50 plus years of opposition was a soul unraveling glimpse of the holiness of God. That is why it's there. It's exactly the same with you. It is. 
I said it last week, our courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture is only as strong as our view of God is deep. Our willingness to speak and suffer for the gospel profoundly depends on if we have a little God or if we have Isaiah's God. And we need Isaiah's God. And so with bad spiritual weather forecasts for the future, that brings us to movement number three. Movement number three, lessons in trust. Lessons in trust, chapters 7 through 12. Because again, Uzziah wasn't a great king, but he was about the only good thing happening in a country that was an absolute disaster. And when his replacement, his son, by the way, King Ahaz took the throne in about 739 BC, he was the perfect king to, to lead a wicked people. Being the worst king in Judah's history, he was, he was the, the king that the people deserved and the one they wanted. But you see, in chapter 7, he is faced with a dilemma of epic proportions. The dilemma of Ahaz, he walked into this. You remember Assyria is blowing through the Middle East, right? Just destroying everything in its path. At this moment, they are headed to Israel. They're headed to Judah to level it to the ground. And so get this. The king from the north in Israel and the king from Syria tell Ahaz that he will join them in an alliance against Assyria or they will invade Judah and destroy it. That was the plan. Does that make sense? Join us against Assyria or die. And Ahaz has multiple options as to what to do, and yet the most obvious of which is to call upon Yahweh and to ask him to intervene. But instead of that, guess what Ahaz does? He pays the king of Assyria to destroy the two kingdoms in the north that are trying to get him to join them in opposition against Assyria. Are you serious? Like, like really? You're gonna, that, that's, that's your plan? You mean you're going to pay the king of Assyria to do what he was already going to do anyway? And so chapter 7, you understand, is the conversation between Isaiah and Ahaz. And it is a little tense. And in an 8th century version way, Isaiah comes up to Ahaz and essentially asks him, Are you out of your stinking mind? Have you lost your mind? Trust in Yahweh, not the king of Assyria. What are you doing? And yet Ahaz will hear none of it because Assyria already cashed the check. And so chapter 7 predicts two things. Two things chapter 7 predicts. One, Assyria will invade Judah and destroy just about everything. Number two, although they would almost be exterminated, Judah and David's royal line would be spared because, get this, one day a virgin would give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God is with us. Do you see? Things would be so bad that the only real way to ensure the preservation of David's line from which the Messiah would come would be a virgin giving birth to a child 
So yes, in Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin birth is predicted. But then that brings us to chapter 8, which predicts the absolute destruction that would come upon Israel and Syria in the north. The very countries that are oppressing Ahaz and Judah right this very moment. There's no need to fear them. There's no need to trust them. Because in about 14 years from that day, Assyria would move in, destroy the northern kingdom, and take them as slaves back into Assyria. Which is really sad. Right? Because although the northern kingdom was an absolute disaster, they were still Yahweh's people. But Yahweh's not done with them because in chapter 9, in chapter 9, look at chapter 9. We read that in the future, get this now, light would come from the north. Glory would come from Galilee. Does that sound familiar? Look at verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulders, and they will call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. As to the increase of his dominion and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Do you see what this is? In chapter 9, this is Christ and his future reign over the earth. But then chapter 10 predicts the fall of Assyria. I know, I know, Judah, I know they have the biggest guns, I know they have the biggest tanks, but one day, like a mighty forest, Yahweh would chop them down in his anger. And in 605 BC, that's exactly what he did. There's no need to fear Assyria. There's no need to fear China. There is no need to fear even your own country, which seems hell-bent on its own destruction. Why? Because Yahweh rules the world with absolute, undisputed dominion. Speaking of ruling the world, chapter 11. One of the most important chapters, not only in Isaiah, but maybe even in the whole Bible. It's a riveting prophecy of the future kingdom of the Messiah. If you, if you look, look at chapter 11, verse 1. It's astonishing. Listen to the language. But a branch, a stem will come forth from the stump of Jesse, David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Look down at verse 4. He will judge the poor with righteousness and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And the chapter goes on to describe that when he comes, there will be a new and greater exodus as the Davidic king will rescue Israel from the nations in which they were scattered. And when he returns, the curse will be lifted, the spell will be broken, and all things will be as they ought to be. And then chapter 12, a song celebrating the future kingdom. Look what it says in verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, key word. I will not be afraid, for Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Do you hear that? Because Yahweh is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. Little flock, my question is, what ails you? this morning? What afflicts you this morning? What burdens and concerns you 
this morning. What is the rock in the shoe of your faith that makes you anxious and keeps you awake at night? Because you see, prophecy and prediction are in the Bible precisely to infuse into your soul's radical trust in the God who has already written the script of history. Movement number four. We're going to make it. Movement number four. Judgment on the nations. Judgment on the nations, chapters 13 through 23. 13 through 23. I don't need to say much about this, but all of a sudden, symbols begin to crash and horns blast and violins screech as chapters 13 through 23 describes the future judgment on the wicked nations of the Middle East. All of them, I should say, none of them will be spared. Not Babylon, not the Philistines, not Egypt, not Edom, Arabia, the big, bad Bullies of the Middle East stand no chance against Yahweh and his king, and yet you should know in chapter 19 it describes salvation that those from Egypt, those from Arabia, those from the countries which are currently Muslim will be saved and they will be his people too. But the point is you mustn't fear the nations, nor should you trust the nations. Rather, you should fear and trust the God who rules the nations. Movement number five. Movement number five, which I call the little apocalypse. The little apocalypse, chapters 24 through 27. In other words, what these four chapters are, are a psychedelic prediction of how the world is going to end. That's what it is. This is literally the book of Revelation squeezed into four chapters. It is unfolding the eschatological drama to come at the end of the age, and it includes, but is no way limited to, the tribulation, the arrival of the kingdom, the judgment of the wicked, the resurrection of the dead, the messianic banquet, tasty, not to mention the destruction of Satan himself. So again, you see that prophecy is not in your Bible to confuse you but to comfort you, to comfort you, to give you eyes to see that every moment of your lives is the uninterrupted domain of God's divine activity. Movement number six. Movement number six, rebuke for misplaced trust. Movement number six is a rebuke for misplaced trust, chapters 28 through 35. In other words, shame, shame, shame on you, Judah. What are you thinking? You've already seen, you already know that God will conquer the nations and bring his global kingdom to the planet. So why are you trusting in the feeble has-been over-the-hill kingdom of Egypt to, to protect you against the king of Assyria? That makes no sense. And yet that's exactly what they did. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. Chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. And trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. Notice, but they do not look to Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek Yahweh. Chapter 29, verse 9 says that Yahweh would make them drunk in his wrath. Exile and judgment were coming. And yet, and yet, even though that was going to happen, get this, chapter 32, verse 15 says that one day Yahweh would pour out his spirit upon Israel. And not only that, but in chapter 33, verse 6, it says that one day the fear of Yahweh would be their treasure. And that chapter 33, 17 says that one day their eyes would see the king in his beauty. 
The section ends in chapter 35, a captivating foretaste of Messiah's kingdom when he brings paradise back to earth. And if you take it literally, and I do, what we see is that deserts will bloom, disease will disappear, streams will flow in the wilderness, everything our first parents lost in the beginning will be restored at the end. The point is, the point is of 28 through 35, the point is that your deepest security can never be found in your circumstances, but in the God who is sovereign over your circumstances. Do you see? The question is, What is your Egypt? What is your Egypt? What is your source of misplaced trust? Is there anything in your life other than Yahweh to which you are looking for ultimate security and comfort and strength and satisfaction? Isaiah Isaiah will help us. That brings us to movement number seven. Movement number seven, a real-time display of Yahweh's sovereignty. A real-time display of Yahweh's sovereignty, chapters 36 through 39. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, uh, Isaiah's symphony changes. The melody is different. The tempo has changed. The beat has altered. The melody switches from prophecy to history. Chapters 36 through 39 are all historical narrative of events that took place during the reign of King Hezekiah, King Ahaz's son. And what these chapters are all about, get this, is about what it looks like in real time to hold on to dear life to the sovereign hand of God. What does it look like? It looks like King Hezekiah. Because what trusting the Lord looks like on the surface looks ridiculous. It looks preposterous. It looks insane, which is exactly why King Ahaz didn't do it. But instead sold his soul to the king of Assyria. That was 35 years ago when Ahaz made the deal with Assyria. And now Hezekiah had to clean up the mess. Because even back in chapter 7, verse 17, we didn't read it, but here's what Isaiah foretells to Ahaz. Yahweh will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father days which have not happened since since the day Ephraim departed from Judah. What would he bring? The king of Assyria. In other words, this would be the worst event in the history of the land since the nation split in two. Here it is. And what would happen? Who would happen? 35 years later, the king of Assyria showed up, who crushed little nations like Judah, like insects on the pavement, the horrible mess that Ahaz made, Hezekiah, his son, had to clean up. The question is, how would Isaiah respond? How would he respond? Would he trust in the sovereign power of the living God? Or would he blow it like his coward politician father? You understand, at this moment... This moment, Assyria's armies are outside the gates. They are demanding surrender. They are the undefeated heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East. Jerusalem doesn't stand a chance. There's literally no way they are ever going to get out of this alive. And yet, and yet, just before the buzzer, at the 11th hour, with the salivating dogs of Assyria, just outside the city, waiting for the whistle to strike, Hezekiah slumps into the temple, falls on his knees, 
and prays one of the most God-exalting prayers in the history of mankind. Look at chapter 37. 37 verses 16 through 20, I'm going to read it. I want you to follow with me. This is important for us to see. Chapter 37, verses 16 through 20. Notice Hezekiah's prayer. O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, the one who sits above the cherubim, you alone are God. You made all the kingdoms of the earth and the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, Yahweh, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, which he sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have destroyed their countries and their land, and they put their gods in the fire because they are not gods, but the work of the hands of man, wood and stone, and they destroyed them. Here it is. But now, Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand. Here it is. And let all the kingdoms of the earth know that you alone are Yahweh. That is how to pray. That is how to plead with the Almighty. To intervene, call him to intervene with his matchless supremacy for all the world to see. And you remember, don't you? Yahweh does intervene. That very night, an angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 Assyrian troops. Just wipes out the entire battalion and Jerusalem lives to see another day. The point of that, the point of that there is to tell you that Yahweh will also deliver in your life. He will also intervene in your life. Either now, temporarily, or finally in the future forever. But one day, mark my words, he will intervene and make things right. The plot of Hezekiah's life, however, gets a little more complex. Almost all A's on the report card, except for the F at the end of his life. Maybe you remember the scene. In chapter 38, he gets sick asks Yahweh to heal him and intervene, which he does. And get this, which the king of Babylon hears about. The Bab king of Babylon hears about Hezekiah getting, getting healed. And here's the thing you have to understand. Babylon at the time was a small operation, a minor league team in a, in a major league game. And yet they were growing. They were waiting for their opportunity to rule the world. They were positioning themselves, looking for their time to strike. And after the healing of Hezekiah, get this, this is important to the plot. After the healing of Hezekiah, Babylonian ambassadors show up to Jerusalem and under the guise of friendship and care and concern for Hezekiah, show up and spend some time with him. And, but what they're really just there to do is to take notes and case the joint and dis, uh, discuss how it is they will invade in the future. And you remember that Hezekiah literally showed them everything. Do you remember? Showed them everything. He gave them a tour of the kingdom. Showed them the treasures, the riches, the fortresses, the fortune, fortunes, the weapons, and the armory. In his pride, he dazzled these men from Babylon, and they never forgot. When they caught their plane and left, Isaiah came up to Hezekiah and said, who was that and what did you just do? Hezekiah, oh, well, explained the situation. And then, probably a shock to Hezekiah, Isaiah rebuked him for his 
stupid arrogance and said these words. Hear the word of Yahweh. This is chapter 39, verse 17. Behold, the days are coming. Listen very carefully. When all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. In other words, invasion, destruction, ruin, and captivity. Babylon would come, level them to the ground. Do you know why that prediction is significant? Because that wasn't going to happen for another 120 years. Prophecy. Prophecy. And so chapter 39 is absolutely massive to the understanding of the whole book of of Isaiah. Do you know why? Because chapters 40 through the end, everything changes. Listen very carefully. The rest of the book is written not necessarily to people in Isaiah's day. It was written to a future generation of Jews, 120 years in the future, languishing in exile. Which brings us to movement number eight. Movement number eight, the matchless supremacy of the Holy One. The matchless supremacy of the Holy One. Chapters 40 through 48. Because again, you notice, chapter 39 ends on a note of terror and despair. Look very carefully. Look how chapter 40, verse 1 begins. Look what it says. Comfort, comfort, O my people, declares your God. Isn't that interesting? Which means what? Which means chapters 40 through the end are all designed to comfort a people who wouldn't be born for another hundred years. And how does Yahweh comfort them? How does he soothe the souls of his people in slavery? How does he comfort a future generation of people crushed under the boot of Babylon's legions? I'll tell you how. Through riveting portrayals and displays of his own sovereignty and supremacy that make the nations of the earth look puny and worthless in comparison, which is exactly what they are. Here's a sample. Here's a sample. You don't have to turn to any of these, but chapter 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and like a speck of dust on a pair of scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. He makes the rulers of the earth nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. To whom shall you compare me and I be his equal, declares Yahweh. Chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses whom I chose, and you will know, and you believe me, and understand that I am he, and before me there was no God formed, before after me there will be none after. Verse 11, I, I am Yahweh, there is no Savior besides me. Chapter 44, verse 6, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Chapter 45, verse 5. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And on and on it goes ad nauseum, almost. Yahweh belaboring the point, flashing the credentials of his own supremacy. What is the point? The point is, these chapters 
are written to a future generation of Jews not even born yet to sustain them in the midst of a Babylonian exile that wouldn't even happen for another 120 years. How's that? Don't you see? The implications of this are clear. The higher up into God you climb, the more equipped you will be for the trials that he ordains. The secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push yourselves deeper than ever into who God is. If Isaiah teaches anything, and he teaches us a ton, it's that the more glory you see of who God is, the more liberation you experience from the fears that entangle you. Which brings us to movement number nine. Movement number nine, salvation in the servant. Salvation in the servant, chapters 49 through 55. Chapters 49 through 55, and I would make my way to Isaiah 53. I need hours. I only have minutes. And so let me just simply say that beginning in chapter 42, Isaiah begins to preach on the Messiah, which he has done before, but in chapter 42, he begins to preach on the Messiah in a way surprising and unfamiliar to most people. You see, yes, the Messiah would be a sovereign king who would crush his enemies, but he would also be a suffering servant who would die for his enemies. The Messiah would be a servant, a servant who brings salvation, who brings salvation through the sacrifice of himself. You see, the servant would be supreme, but through the means of his suffering. He would be exalted, but through the means of his execution. Here in the sacred text of Isaiah, we see the sin-bearing substitutionary death of Jesus Christ 700 years before he ever even showed up. Chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, behold... Our sufferings he carried, and our sorrows he bore them. But we esteemed him stricken, struck down of God and afflicted. But he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh struck him with the iniquity of us all. Here in the fifth gospel of the Bible, Isaiah, you will see such breathtaking displays of the beauty of Christ. It will radically change the way you read the gospels forever, which brings us finally to movement number 10. And then we're done. Movement number 10, the future glory of Zion. The future glory of Zion, chapters 56 through 66. Because the question is, what is Zion exactly? And not just what is it, but where is it? Because what it is and where it is is the exact same thing. And what and where Zion is, is Jerusalem the actual physical literal city, the one you can see on a map this day. I should actually say it is Zion, it is Jerusalem in the future when the Davidic king comes to claim his throne. Zion is the capital of the kingdom, 
the headquarters of the king, the center of the earth, according to Ezekiel. It is the city of God, and according to Psalm 50, verse 2, it is the perfection of beauty itself. Not now, but one day it will be when Christ takes the planet that rightfully belongs to him. And he will rule the earth from his throne in Zion. You saw in chapter 2, all the nations will stream to the city. Daniel 7 says that all the nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. And then finally, they will be a light to the nations. Finally, then they will be a servant to the world. Look at chapter 62. Chapter 62, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it be said, desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married. For the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And finally, my last line. The symphony of Isaiah ends with this in chapter 66. With this, I close. Here it is. Here's how the world is going to end, chapter 66. The very end. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I made endure before me, declares Yahweh, so your offspring, Israel, and your name, Israel, will endure. And it will be that from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, in other words, forever, all flesh will come and bow down before me, declares Yahweh. That's the book of Isaiah. That's 10 movements and the symphony of Isaiah. And you understand Isaiah, if it is anything, and it is so many things, it is literally a 37,000-word reminder to us that God's power is invincible. His kingdom is unshakable. His character is unchangeable. His promises are irrevocable. His love is inexhaustible. His plan is indestructible. And the display of his glory at the end of the age, it is inevitable. And that's good news. Let's pray. Oh, Yahweh, we understand that there is so much gold to mine here. And we understand that not if, but when we do verse by verse, when we go through this chapter by chapter, it will be as exhaustive as we can do as time will allow, but we know that there are still, will be many ocean caves filled with gold that will be unexplored by us. And yet, Lord, what I'm asking for me, what I'm asking for my flock here, 
for your flock that you purchased. I'm asking that you would mediate your glory to us, that you would minister to us through this book, that you would sustain us and strengthen us, and you would make us a people of bulletproof steel, of lion-hearted courage and conviction to face a fallen world. We need you, Lord. We need you in the little things. We need you to be faithful, faithful with our thought lives, faithful with our responses to our spouses, faithful to, to get time in your word and to get our souls fed, faithful to, to pray, faithful to be holy, and all the practical things we need, Lord. And I know that, Lord, even if Isaiah doesn't say one word about those things, oh Lord, that it will furnish what we need, all the power we need to live in a way that you command. We ask to that end so that you would be exalted and put on display for the treasure that you are. In your son's matchless name we pray, amen.